and that he would breathe down the phone a number of times, I think it was three times, hang up and then do it again. And that would be, I've got genuine, actionable intelligence that there is an imminent nuclear strike. And they did get that call. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. In August 1960, a Soviet colonel called Oleg Penkovsky contacted the West to offer to work as a soldier warrior for the free world. MI6 and the CIA ran Penkovsky jointly in an operation that ran through the showdown over Berlin into the Cuban Missile Crisis. Penkovsky provided crucial intelligence, including photographs of rocket manuals that helped President Kennedy end the Cuban Missile Crisis and avert a war. Codenamed Hero, Penkovsky is widely seen as one of the most important spies of the Cold War. We speak with Jeremy Duns, the author of Dead Drop, also called Codename Hero in the US, which investigates exactly how the Russians detected Penkovsky and why they let him continue his contact with his handlers for months afterwards. Described as thrilling, evocative and hugely controversial, the book blows apart the myths surrounding one of the Cold War's greatest spy operations. Now, I could really use your support to help me continue to produce the podcast. A simple monthly donation via Patreon entitles you to the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Listen to one of our Patreons tell you why they donated to the podcast. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because of the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Interested in helping us? Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Jeremy Duns to our Cold War Conversation. Oleg Penkovsky was a colonel in the GIU, military, Soviet, Soviet military intelligence during the Cold War, who acted as an agent in place for MI6 and the CIA, most famously during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he's sort of known as one of the great uh, agents that the West had during the Cold War. That's, that's basically the story. How did he become disillusioned with the Soviet Union? Yeah, it was a long, long process. I think the Soviet Union was really run on kind of nepotistic grounds and and who you knew and social contacts. And Penkovsky, I think early on in his career in military intelligence, really thought that he was going to be a big flyer. And he didn't quite have the contacts and it didn't quite work. And he really wanted to be a general and it didn't happen. He had a couple of uh, dodgy moments early on in his career where his his card was kind of marked. He fell out with a, a head of station in Turkey and his career had basically stalled and he kind of stewed on it and became sour about it and eventually decided that he wanted to work for the West um, and sort of blow the, you know, blow the whole thing sky high, essentially. Because I think his father fought for the white Russians, didn't he, in the uh, Russian Revolution? He did, and he felt that that had been held against him 
we don't really know what, what exactly was holding him back, whether or not that was a real reason. But once he had come over to the West and had started feeding intelligence, it's clear from the debriefs that he was very uh, embittered by this. He felt that he'd been discriminated against. He felt that others who were less competent than him, you know, he'd been passed over. It's a sort of classic story of, you know, that's a classic ideology for a double agent that he he felt he'd been passed over. But nevertheless, he portrayed himself as you know, ideological, that it wasn't anything really to do with that, that the real reason that he was giving all these secrets was because he thought that the Soviet system was corrupt and, and needed to be stopped and that Khrushchev was a madman and, and all of those sort of things. But I think it's pretty clear that a major part of his motivation was that he had not been promoted um, to general, essentially. And he also had some strange ideas about how to overthrow the Soviet Union, but we come on to those in a, in, in a little while. How did he try and make contact with the West? Because I presume being based in the Soviet Union, that wasn't going to be the easiest uh, job. It wasn't. And he thought about it for quite a while. I mean, he was, you know, he knew more than most people that there was massive amount of surveillance, that the KGB were everywhere. Um, so eventually he, he approached a couple of American students. This was in August 1960. And he'd kind of been looking at them for a while. They were on a two-week study program um, in Moscow. And um, he watched them for a bit and then he decided these were, you know, he would try and, and get hold of them. There was a whole range of people he tried to kind of um, sound out and see if they were interested in, in in listening to him. And basically people were too paranoid because most people in the West had been told, you know, any Russian, don't trust any Russians. They could be working for intelligence. You know, this could be a provocation. So he had tried with, you know, Canadian attache and all this kind of stuff. But this was the real breakthrough um, when he spoke to these two two students, because they actually went to the American embassy um, and told them about it, and he, he had a letter um, that he'd he'd given to them, and that was his contact with 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 American intelligence. And eventually, this did actually de- lead to the CIA and and MI six getting getting in touch with him. Was there some worry even with the CIA and MI six whether he was the real deal or whether it was a uh, a dangle, if I'm going to use uh, espionage terminology. <laughs> yeah, they thought it could well be a dangle. They had had members of their station who had been recalled through honey traps and other uh, other kind of provocations. So they investigated it. There was a, a guy called Joe Bulick, a CIA officer, who basically tried to figure out who is this guy. From the he left this letter where he had had sort of rather um, in, in quite a Russian elaborate style said that he you know um, wanted to work for he wanted to work as a soldier warrior for the cause of truth for the ideals of a truly free world and of democracy for mankind you know and he he, kind of had all this stuff and he he'd also included in this letter um a few sort of tantalizing um things he he had a, a map of a dead drop and he also had a photograph um in which he had um cut his his own face out of the photograph but there was um an American uh, colonel who um, was was photographed uh, in in the who was also in the photograph who they were able to identify. So eventually, Bulick, um, you know, he interviewed these students and he 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 went some distance to going around to try to figure out who is this guy. And they eventually, looking through lots of files, figured out that it was you know Oleg Penkovsky who was a, a colonel in 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 military intelligence, and, and they decided that you know this might be. This might be worth um, going ahead with. Um, the problem they had was that they really didn't have, um, this was all being done from Langley. They didn't have any real presence in Moscow. Uh, the British did, um, but they didn't. 
And so eventually um, kind of going down the, you know, lots of different routes, it, they came to um, Greville Wynne, who was a British businessman who had also um, sort of, who Penkovsky had also tried to kind of approach. It's a classic kind of case of where the Americans had um, a huge amount of resources, um, but the British had a kind of way in. Um, it's quite common in these kind of operations. And if you've read any John Le Carre, which is largely a lot of it is inspired by this operation, it's a very familiar thing that the Americans had the money basically um, to, to set up the operation. Um, but a lot of the legwork was done by MI6. Greville Wynne is the, is the character played by Benedict Cumberbatch in uh, The Courier film. Was Wynne trained as an agent in any way? I don't think he was. I mean, a long time after this operation, he did claim that he had, you know, some sort of um, early experiences, but I'm not sure how much we can really trust him as a source. Um, due to what happened in the operation, he was he was severely affected by, um, by this operation. Um, he was damaged by it psychologically. And his, his, um, his life, in some ways, one could say, was ruined by this operation. So after it, he wrote a couple of books and he made various claims about his previous previous uh, intelligence experience. But I, he might have had a little bit, but I think really he was a bit of an innocent thrown into this. He was um, he was a reasonably successful kind of import export guy, and he spent a lot of time um, in locations behind the Iron Curtain at trade fairs and uh, you know trying to deal with the with the Russians and the Eastern Europeans. And it was at one of these. That um, that he met Penkovsky, um, so he was a sort of useful link. He was a useful cutout, and and one of the major reasons that he was was because he was he wouldn't be suspected by the KGB because he didn't have any obvious intelligence links prior. I have actually got one of his books. I've got Contact on Gorky Street. Yeah, um, which I read some time ago, but. Obviously, some of these books you have to take with a pinch of salt. I would take that one with a few with a few pinches of salt. Yes. <laughs> what sort of info was Penkovsky able to hand over to MI6 and the CIA? He had an enormous amount of information. So, I mean, the first thing was, you know, that it might seem to us now sitting here in 2021 okay he was a colonel you know in, in soviet military intelligence but that's partly because you know of this operation and the influence it had of of you know reading john le carré you know and all of these kind of things at the time you know this was one of the biggest coups they had had and the fact that he was senior enough uh, in military intelligence meant that he really did know the whole soviet system and the whole intelligence system. And so just from his own head, he could explain to them all of the internal politics and all the inside, you know, maneuverings of, of lots and lots of people in power, exactly how, how it worked. He could explain to them, you know, what would, what the plans were in the event of a nuclear war, you know, how the, um, the Politburo were, were planning to escape, you know, they had a, a separate underground system and, and how how the KGB kind of kept control over society, uh, what they bugged, exactly how they did it, how they used bugs in their cars, an enormous amount of information, very, very detailed information, organizational information. But then on top of that, he took photographs. They trained him to photograph documents, and he had access to a lot of uh, classified material through a sort of special library that he he gained access to, claiming that he was writing an academic article. And he's, he just spent a lot of time photographing material for them you know a lot of it 
quite dry, but a lot of it extremely useful, um, including, you know, manuals for missiles, which eventually led to the identification of the missiles on Cuba. It, it did make me laugh reading your book that the CIA, I think, was suspicious about the quality of photos that yeah. uh, Penkovsky was taking and thought that he could possibly you know, be working for, for the KGB and these these photos are being taken by some KGB specialists. So at one point when they met up with him in the West, they asked him to take some photos of like five pound notes and, and other things to test out his ability and discovered that he, he was really good at taking these photos. Yeah. And also, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, that, that whole fear, I mean, you mentioned the dangle thing right from the start, you know, it took quite a while, took several four starts for them to take him on partly because of this fear. And then even after they took him on, it was constantly a worry. You know, is this too good to be true? You know, eventually they concluded, no, this is actually the real stuff. I mean, you couldn't possibly construct all of this stuff. He was talking to them for hours and hours and hours. As you say, they tested him on the on the, on the material uh, impromptu and, uh, you know, whether or not he could take the photos. And he was just providing so much information. But, of course, it was a small group of people involved in this operation. Then what happened is other people started doubting it. Is this too good to be true? How can you possibly know this? And as you know, you know, they had to, you know, in espionage, you have to compartmentalize your information so they couldn't tell everyone where they got it from because then it, he you know it would be a, a security risk that perhaps if there was a leak someone would be able to identify him so they tried to disguise his material uh, in various ways with various different code names they used for it but the result was really at quite a high level people were like yeah but is this is this real is this actually true can we what's the source of this can we trust it so uh, in a way it demonstrates a problem that you can have um, it's an it's a unique problem to have, and it's in a way a luxury problem to have. But you can have an intelligence source who is so good um, that um, it creates its own problems because people start doubting it, and you start turning in on yourself um, as an agency. And that definitely happened both during the operation and particularly after the operation. Those sort of somersaults um, yeah. that the security agencies were were going through, and sort of. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Moments of doubt and then almost elation that yeah, we think he's okay, and then, oh, mm. well, actually, this is <laughs> and another <laughs> yeah. element of 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 doubt in there. But he did; he must have seemed like an unbelievable gift with the level of information he 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 was giving them. I mean, they'd never had anybody like this before, presumably prior to this point. No, I mean, they'd had a few that were sort of similar, but that had gone wrong. But I mean, yeah, he he did seem like a gift, and that, I mean, another issue they had was you know keeping him sweet. 
because he was very temperamental. I mean, as we've discussed, you know, his reason, his his motivations weren't um, entirely ideological, despite his um, his opening gambit of a letter. They were really um, disillusionment. And also, he wanted payment. You know, he wanted um, a better life for himself and his and his family. And he quite early on started talking about you know if you could give me a few diamonds that i could trade when i get back to moscow and all of these kind of things and um they were they were on a bit of a tightrope because they could afford they could afford it um but they they didn't want to seem too cheap um they didn't and they didn't want to annoy him so that he would you know get bitter on them they needed to uh, um, establish trust with him um and as it went on you know some of his demands i mean you know most infamously he demanded that he he meet with the queen. You know, they obviously just could not introduce the queen to an active Soviet agent. <laughs> it just was impossible to arrange that. Even though there there was there was one uh, looking after her art collection or true, or true, but she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. She didn't. She she wasn't she wasn't aware aware of that. But um, but yeah. So I mean, they had to that, that and that was a really tricky thing because he really, you know, they they kept sort of. Uh, massaging his ego if you like saying you know he needed to be reassured he was a great agent he was a gift but he need, needed to be told this they needed to keep telling him it and they told him it it succeeded and then he said well if i'm such a great agent you know presumably then the queen is going to want to meet me because you know at one point they were they were having a meeting in a hotel room in london a debriefing and he said and he looked around and said one day there'll be a plaque in this room you know <laughs> so it went to his head quite a lot um, and they couldn't, they couldn't get the queen. So they got, um, you know, Dick White, uh, head of MI6 to, to come and so he sort of pretended to be an emissary from Mount Batten. Um, and Penkovsky, I mean, he, he didn't like it basically. He wanted to meet the queen. You know, he wanted to meet Audrey Hepburn. So he was making all of these sorts of demands. Um, so he was a gift, but he was a difficult gift, um, to handle. The the thing that intrigued me, and the one of the things I really like about your book is some of the details you, you've got in there. But when he first turned up, he had this crazy idea about putting uh, low yield <laughs> nuclear weapons in bins all around Moscow, yeah, and and other cities as well. I mean, this is this is on the face of it insane. I mean, this is another problem that they had was that they had to distinguish. I mean, I said before that he had a lot of background information, um, so he had a lot of knowledge just from being in the position that he was in. But he also had a lot of ideas. He had a lot of opinions, and it was quite difficult sometimes for them to um, distinguish. You know, what's intelligence here, and what's just this guy's view. You know, so he was coming up with lots of stuff about. So his his sort of he was obsessed with Khrushchev and and thinking that this guy was was a maniac, and that he was heading he was taking the world towards uh, you know nuclear confrontation. But Penkovsky's kind of idea, which was coming up with some sort of yeah miniature you know nuclear bombs that you could place secretly in bins around Moscow, around uh, KGB headquarters, and so on. You could just sort of destroy the whole of the Soviet Union in one fell swoop. And I mean, we don't have, obviously, you know, we have the transcripts of these debriefs, but I would have loved to have been, you know, fly on the wall to see, you know, the MI6 and CIA officers reaction to this, because it's a completely loopy idea. But again, you know, they had to, he had a lot of loopy ideas. He, 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 he came up with a lot of odd things. 
and they had to keep a straight face. They had to um, humor him. They had to uh, sort of chivvy him along, but not so much that he would get irritated. Um, you know, they had to squeeze a lot of information out of him. They didn't have that much time. They were meeting for three or four hours at a time. Um, and dealing with someone who was quite volatile. So, yeah, it was a, he was a tricky customer, I would say. Yeah, high maintenance. <laughs> high maintenance, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One other thing that I was I was intrigued about was um, that they agreed with him some sort of procedure of ringing various phones in order to warn of a first strike if he thought the Soviet Union was about to uh, make a first strike with nuclear weapons. Yeah. I mean, this came about because of the Berlin Wall and um, Penkovsky had Penkovsky claimed after the war went up that he had actually had knowledge of it a little bit beforehand, that he'd he'd been at a party and he'd heard discussion of it. And so, of course, they said, well, you know, why why didn't you tell us? And the procedures they had because of him being in Moscow and, and the, how complicated it was to put stuff in the dead drop and things like that, they realized that it was too unwieldy. Um, it took too long. And uh, as a result, they had missed that early information about, about the Berlin Wall going up, although I'm not sure what they could have done about it. But then they started thinking, well, you know, what if things go really bad and, you know, we, we have some kind of first strike situation. It's not enough that he just toddles along to his dead drop. And, um, then we get a, get a sort of a signal in his window when we, when we, when someone goes past the next day on the way to the office, you know, we need, we need some emergency procedure. So they came up with this thing. There were two numbers, one American and one British that he could call and that he would breathe down the phone a number of times. I think it was three times, um, hang up and then do it again. And that would be, you know, I've got, um, you know, genuine, uh, actionable intelligence that, um, there is an imminent nuclear strike, um, available. And they did get that call. Um, the Americans and the British both got that call. Um, but I think, as I discuss in my book, um, it's pretty clear that this was after Penkovsky had been arrested. And the most likely explanation is that, well, that he'd been interrogated by the KGB and he had probably given them this information, telling them that it was a different type of signal, uh, a signal that they would have wanted to test. Um, and again, it's similar to the thing that you just mentioned, which is the, um, you know, bomb, you know, nuclear weapons in bins, which is that he basically wanted, you know, just to blow the whole thing up. They'd caught him. And so that was the sort of, that was his solution. So, I mean, that's a very, very volatile agent you're dealing with both at the beginning and at the end of his career. He essentially proposed and tried to, you know, create a nuclear conflict, if you like. But, you know, I'd, I'm amazed by that because, it, you know, he's a volatile agent and you're basically giving him not the ability to nu launch nuclear weapons, but certainly to mm. ratchet up, you know, the tensions between the Soviet Union and, and, and the West. Yeah, it's a difficult thing. I mean, I think they hadn't really thought it through that much because when it actually happened, when the call came, um, they didn't act on it. Um, the call that came to the American officer, Hugh Montgomery, he sent up the line and they thought about it for a bit and dismissed it. Um, but when it came through to um, the British officer, I mean, he just thought, no, that's not, you know, he didn't, he didn't act on it at all. Um, and I'm not sure really how they could have acted on it. I mean, really would a few breaths down a phone um, have managed to have the power to have changed it? I don't know. Um, but I suppose... Um, you know, the Cuba crisis was coming into view and they were just 
they were they were wor- they were they were shaken by the fact that um, they had missed the Berlin Wall thing, and he was constantly. I mean, Penkovsky was constantly talking about um, nuclear war. Khrushchev wants a war, um, and he's leading the world to to war. And you know, you could say that that was a pretty accurate description in some way. Um, so I guess um, at some point they thought. And also his his intelligence had eventually taken on, you know, it had been accepted and it had um, a fairly high level, you know, it was influential. And so at some point, I think they thought, you know, we have this guy, you know, he's right there. If he if he learns anything, we need an emergency, an emergency situation. But yeah, it's a it's a strange, it's a very, very strange moment in the Cold War, I would say. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you've got to also remember at that time, there was no satellite cover over the Soviet Union. I mean, there were the U-2 flights, uh, which were obviously uh, ended with Gary Powers being uh, shot down, but um, they didn't have the visibility of like big troop movements or anything like that during during this period. So I guess, I guess it's understandable. And no hotline because, I mean, the, hot, the hotline was created because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I guess this was their, their version of a hotline. But yeah, it's a, it's a crazy thing. Now... Penkovsky is able to travel to the to the west because he's part of various trade missions, which is where the uh, Western intelligence services are able to, you know, speak to him face to face and and get him to download this information. But he's also passing information while he's in Moscow, isn't he? Yeah. So the problem they had there was um, for most of the operation, as I mentioned earlier, the Americans didn't really have any any presence there. They had all sorts of trouble trying to do it. And of course, Moscow was the headquarters of the KGB. Um, there were, I think, 10,000 KGB um, you know, staff in Moscow. And if you were a foreigner, you were basically in a fishbowl. You, know, you were just under constant surveillance the whole time. So how you know how to do it so they tried a few things they they had ideas that he would sort of um throw throw documents uh, over the wall of the american embassy and these kind of things um which didn't really go anywhere um they had a dead drop behind a radiator and a block of flats which was um, penkovsky's original idea um but eventually they decided that um they needed some sort of um face-to-face um thing and so Rory Chisholm, who was head of uh, MI6's station, um, came up with this idea of using his wife, um, Janet Chisholm. Um, they had young children. She went out walking. She seemed to be under very light surveillance. Uh, who would suspect her? So they had this this kind of ruse where she was she would go to the park on a Sunday and uh, with the pram. And Penkovsky would wander up and he would sort of say what, you know, nice looking children you have and sort of chit chat a bit with her. And uh, then he would pass her a box of sweets um, as a gift for the children. And she would say, thank you very much. And she would put it in the pram and, you know, hidden hidden in it were, were the microfilms. And so they managed to do this, um, you know. I mean, it's sort of weird when you when you start looking at the um, the the declassified material. You know, you have Harry Shergold, who was one of the MI6 officers. Uh, his detailed uh, instructions for this, um, you know, very kind of baldly say arrangements for receiving material from subject by the use of a lady, children, and prams in a park 
will be passed to him via win or failing this through DLB, meaning dead letterbox. But, you know, the use of a lady, children and prams. I mean, it's a very inhuman way of describing, you know, quite a, a bizarre and fraught uh, intelligence operation. Um, but they managed. They did manage to. Um, they did manage to do it. They managed to pull that off. So that was that was one way um, they did it. And there are various other um, encounters that he had. They they gave him sort of packs of cigarettes that he could use to put microfilm in. And there were parties at the American Embassy and this kind of thing. Um, he placed uh, microfilm in a in a in a toilet system uh, in the American Embassy in Moscow at one point that was then recovered, and. I mean, one of the things I found fascinating researching this was was really, uh, it's no exaggeration how much they were under surveillance. So um, the British embassy was piping, um, you know, uh, through, through, they had speakers in every corridor that were sort of piping gibberish that they'd recorded to sort of mask their own conversations. Uh, and in the American embassy, um, they were writing things on a, on a kind of etch-a-sketch pad. Um, so no one, no one talked to each other. So... <laughs> They were they were paranoid, but I think probably rightly so. Well, yeah. Didn't they find a bug in the ambassador's office that had been placed inside some piece of artwork that had been given to him? Yeah, it was in a it was in a, a seal that had been given to them by some Russian schoolchildren, and they'd found that not long before. So yeah, they were completely uh, paranoid about it. And and when it eventually all came out, I mean. I mean, in fact, one of the one of the things, a lot of the stuff that happened in the operation, Penkovsky had warned them about. So one of the things he said in one of his very early debriefs is he said, all restaurants, you know, you can't meet in restaurants. That's why I've suggested a dead drop because um, the KGB bugs them. So any restaurant that any foreigner goes to, uh, the ashtray on the table, uh, it's got a bug in it. But regardless of this, several months later, he was meeting Greville Wynne in a Moscow restaurant. And at the trial, they played, you know, <laughs> they played a tape of the conversation that they had. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that he and he also talked about bugs in cars and all sorts of stuff like that, that actually sort of, you know, was was shown by the operation. Incredible, incredible. But I think by the end of 61 and, and the middle of 62, Penkovsky isn't the only source for Western intelligence because there's uh, the KGB major Galitsyn yes defects in december and there's a foreign ministry first secretary nasenko in in may 62 yes and this is where the story got a little bit complicated because also around the same time you had a lot of paranoia in british intelligence because burgess and mclean had fled and they were slowly getting closer to philby and um you also had george blake and his trial so the the closer that kind of betrayal, all of those betrayals came to the fore, um, those, you know, all of the Russians were also kind of put under the microscope even more, especially Nasenko, who became a kind of um, totally um, surreal, um, wild um, kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it. It, it, but basically they went mad um, and they started seeing shadows everywhere. And Golitsyn had some theories, Nosenko had theories, and they started sort of playing off each other and blaming each other and come, you know, and everything, everything started to get very, very complicated. And before long, 
you know, it was towards the end. So, I mean, Penkovsky was, was, was discovered, but, um, the aftermath of it was really, um, quite brutal, um, because you really had decades of doubts about all of these agents. And in, in July 62, Penkovsky spots that Wynn is under surveillance. I think meet, he was about to meet him in a restaurant, which seems crazy, particularly after his warning of the microphones in restaurants, as you, as you said before. Yeah. So, He's obviously fearful of um, being under under suspicion. We then sort of move into the the Cuban Missile period, or is he is he arrested? Just is Penkovsky picked up before the Cuban Missile period reaches its height? He first sees Penkovsky first sees surveillance in in late sixty one, and he sees a man in a black overcoat, and he worries, um, and he kind of disappears, and he goes off the grid. And the CIA and MI6 are not really sure what's going on. Um, and it's not until March, late March 1962, that he turns up again. He just suddenly turns up at a, a cocktail party at the British Embassy. Um, he passes a pack of cigarettes behind his back to a scientific attache's wife, British scientific attache's wife, which contains 11 rolls of Minox film and a letter. And the letter explains this uh, surveillance that he's seen a, a man in a black overcoat in a, a brown saloon and it gives a license plate so he um basically says let's kind of put it on on ice for a little for a little bit um which they then do after this you then have um galitzin's defection the cia are then are then caught up in all that kind of stuff um they sort of have a little bit less contact with penkovsky uh, for a few months, they they have a he turns up at a screening um, for a film at the British Embassy, and then a few days after that, the CIA and MI6 draft a joint letter asking him, does he have any concrete information as to military measures being undertaken by the USSR to convert Cuba into an offensive military base, um, and they specifically want to know if there are any plans to place surface-to-air missiles on the island, and so this is really the start of. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. However, Penkovsky is now off the grid. He just doesn't turn up at the next meeting. Um, and slowly, the Cuban Missile Crisis starts happening without him. Um, and it's really right towards the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis um, on the final day, we think, that Penkovsky, they finally realise Penkovsky has been arrested. What impact does Penkovsky have on the decision-making on the Western side for through the Cuban Missile Crisis? Because obviously he's provided a lot of information on the Soviet missile capabilities, which must be really useful to sort of try and second guess what the Soviets are going to do. The Americans had lots and lots of photographs of the Soviets' May Day parades, um, but they also had the field manuals that Penkovsky had photographed in Penkovsky. And while they were looking through all of this information, they, they came across a photograph of the R-12, um, which was designated the SS-4 by NATO forces um, and MRBM. And Penkovsky had provided them the manual for that. And checking this against the U-2 images, they realized that these were the same things. So that sort of kicked it off in the first place. But then, yes, the information itself, they think gave Kennedy a little bit extra time because he knew that it would take three days for them, for the Russians to actually kind of put this into action. Um, so that gave him a little bit of breathing space. However, I would say on the opposite side, um, in a way, I mean, we've talked uh, about the volatility of Penkovsky, that he was already, you know, as soon as he met 
the Americans suggesting blowing up Moscow and, and other cities. And towards the end, he, he kind of did something a little bit similar. And I think, in a way, his, he was constantly feeding his handlers um, a narrative of that Khrushchev is driving us towards nuclear war. And I'm not sure how helpful that was because they had to unravel the fact that Khrushchev didn't actually want to have a nuclear war. That's not what, that was not what his actual plan was. Benkovsky was constantly saying, you know, he will take you to the brink. Um, he wants to, um, you know, he wants to keep pushing you. And the only way to beat this guy is to, is to kind of um, never stand down. And I mean, you know, in a way that is what happened, but in a way that was a very, very, um, you know, strange thing to be suggesting. And I, I think it, through his intelligence, fed into the way that Kennedy looked at it. Um, so you can see it in one way or another. I mean, was was Kennedy, who was acting more, Kennedy or Khrushchev? I don't know. And how much Penkovsky's, um narrative, not so much his intelligence, but his actual opinions uh, seeped into the thinking. I don't know. I don't know if we really know at this point. It's it's quite intriguing as to yeah how how influential he he was um, in in that in that decision making. As as you said, Pankowski was picked up or arrested just at the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then. I think it's, it's is it a, somebody from the CIA goes to try and pick up something from a dead drop. Yeah, they send a kind of they send a they send a junior officer to go and check, and he's immediately arrested by the KGB. And so then they know, then they know it, then they know it's over. And and Wynn is picked up at a trade fair in Budapest as well, uh, which takes a couple of days later. But yeah, then then it's definitely over. You know, their two main agents have gone. Did nobody warn Wynn? Because if he's picked up a couple of days later, did nobody <laughs> let him know that you know somebody no. might be feeling your collar? <laughs> I don't know. That's a very good question. No, I think I I think that um, they basically uh, this is this is probably you know the, an American was arrested, then they had to sort of you know not not explain properly what had happened in the press. And yeah, I don't know how they would have communicated to MI6 and how he would have communicated to Wynn in Budapest. But yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that, I mean, Wynn was, you know, in the trial, very bitter about MI6. He felt he'd been hung out to dry. And perhaps that that's a, you know, pretty rational and um, fair point to make. You know, your guy was picked up and no one warned me. He definitely felt aggrieved by what had happened. 11th of December, Tass announced Penkovsky's uh, arrest and the trial is uh, May sixty three. Only lasts four days. Was Wynn's defence? He was just an innocent businessman who'd been lured in by MI six. Yeah, um, his his main defence was yeah he'd been lured or, or even tricked really uh, by MI six into doing it, and um, he kind of went on a huge show. Um, sort of denouncing MI6, which I think, as I just said, it was partly really, you know, he really felt that he'd been hung out to dry. However, he kind of, he didn't give away the whole game. Um, he didn't know their real names anyway, so he couldn't use the officer's real names. And he later claimed, well, you know, what else could he could he have done? You know, this was, this was, um, this was the way out. But I mean, there is some evidence that early on, he offered to try to turn Penkovsky for the KGB, uh, you know, to work for the KGB. But you know, it's it's difficult to judge this man. I think he was he didn't ask to be in this situation. He wasn't a professional, 
you know, intelligence officer. And he realized at some point fairly late on when he was in Moscow, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't all a lark, really, that he was in serious danger. When it came to the trial, I mean, he basically became desperate. He was desperate to survive. Um, so he said all sorts of things. I mean, he gave all kinds of outbursts, uh, quite a few of which made the British press and quite a few of which he sort of had to live down, you know, for years later and try to explain why he'd acted and sort of retroactively uh, come up with justifications for. But the truth, I think, is that like any of us in that situation, I mean, you would say whatever you could. You, you know, he's in the, he's in the Lubyanka, mm. in the hands of the KGB. So um, I can't really blame him for that. And, um, you know, of course, at the end of the trial, he he was the lucky one, if you like, because, you know, he was imprisoned. Uh, Penkovsky was not. So, so were you saying there that Wynne offered to work for the KGB? There is some evidence to suggest that. Um, I don't know how. I mean, it's in it's in the book, so you can you can gauge yeah. yourself. I mean, one of one of the problems with this is who who do you trust? But yeah, there is um, you know the the Soviet uh, officer who was in charge of the investigation ha- has claimed in an interview that uh, you know that this happened early on. Um, right, and when when after the um, after he you know came back to the UK, I mean he. He sued lots of people for making claims about him, um, and you know he was a very he was a very unhappy man. You know his 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 uh, marriage fell apart, and he he couldn't sleep and 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 slept on the floor and all of this kind of stuff. But he was traumatized by this. So um, I and you know that's afterwards. But I imagine if you're picked up by the KGB, you know it sounds sort of fairly glib. You know he's picked up by the KGB at a trade mm-hmm. fair in Budapest. But I mean, imagine imagine that happening to you. Um, it would have been utterly terrifying. So I think he probably just re- reverted to just trying to say anything that he possibly could um, to get out of it. And as I say, I can't I can't really fault him for that. No, I think I would probably be doing the same thing in that situation. <laughs> to be to be yeah. Uh, yeah. honest, um, yeah. have you? How, how was Wynne treated by the KGB? I mean, what what sort of interrogation was he knocked about, or was it more psychological? He claimed. I mean, we don't. You know, we, it's difficult to know that. We we he he claimed. Uh, I mean, in his his book is, or his books have quite a bit about this, and it's sort of psychological, some physical kind of you know suffering. But it's sort of uh, there's a lot of it about how you know how dirty he found them and how sweaty they were and you know their colognes was cheap and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's very difficult to separate the kind of British stiff upper lip, you know, and kind of propaganda kind of thing. He's sort of presenting himself as a little bit of a James Bond figure and a little bit above it all. To what actually happened, I think he probably wasn't seriously tortured, but you know, it would have been incredibly grim. I mean, going to any prison's grim, going to the Lubyanka and he was sent to another prison out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it would have been, it would have been cold and grim and, you know, horrible. And he never really fully recovered from it. I think. Now he's, he's sentenced to five, eight years, five years in a labor camp. And, um, I presume three years in a, uh, prison, but he is released after sixteen months. I think the the from what I understand, the British government were worried about his welfare and his health, and they trade him for Conan Molody, aka Gordon Lonsdale, 
who featured in our episodes 138 and 139 about the uh, the Portland spy rings. So these all these all link together in the end. And there's a um, a classic exchange at uh, I think it's Heerstrasse checkpoint in Berlin. And w- what do we know about the fate of Oleg Penkovsky? Well, he was shot, basically. I mean, there's, there, there is a, an incredibly persistent rumour um, that, you know, he was cremated and the KGB filmed him and everything, um, which is one of those kind of things that you sort of want to be true because it's so grisly, it sounds like it should be true. But in my research, I think it's pretty clear that they just shot him um, at the prison because, you know, there, there is a death you know certificate that says it. Um, and... You know that's the easiest thing to do. The idea that you're gonna you're gonna go through all of that is is a little bit unlikely, and, and comes from a MI6 sponsored propaganda memoir of a of a defector. Um, having said that, they did go to some quite elaborate lengths. It does look like um, after they arrested Penkovsky, the KGB forced him, basically, I suppose, by threatening his family, to relive or or replay everything he'd done. So they got him to sort of sit at his desk and photograph documents and um, visit his dead drop. And they got someone who looked like Janet Chisholm um, to kind of walk along. And they made a training film out of it. Um, and you can tell that, you know, I go into this in detail in the book about why I don't think this is the real real surveillance footage. But it's quite hammy and, and they keep sort of cutting back and forth to the kind of brave KGB officers who are following him and and so they did go to some elaborate length. So I wouldn't say it's impossible that they that they cremated him, but I think it's extremely unlikely. And Occam's Razor says they probably just shot him uh, in the prison. One of the things we've not covered, and there's a lot of detail in in the book. So I do recommend you get the book because we're you know we've just sort of scratched the surface with what we've covered here. But the big question that we've not covered, which is investigated at at some length in the book is how Penkovsky was betrayed. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose this is the kind of USP of my book or, or the heart of it, which which really comes afterwards. Um, I mean, one aspect is the kind of propaganda war that kind of came with, with the publication of the Penkovsky papers. Um, and um, another is the kind of... Um, you know, paranoia and the, the mole hunt that, that, that happened that we, we, we talked about before with the whole atmosphere of Blake and Philby and Nosenko and everything. But the other one is really that, you know, the story that the KGB have about how they caught Penkovsky seems a little bit too neat, that they basically kind of accidentally stumbled upon him um, through light surveillance. And in the book, I've tried to propose some various ideas about other things that might have happened, including one sort of key key theory about what I think might have happened. And we're going to leave it there, listeners. Leave you tantalised. <laughs> the book is called Dead Drop in the UK, the true story of Oleg Pentkovsky and the Cold War's most dangerous operation. In the United States, it's called Codename Hero. There will be links in the show notes which will show a link to the books as well as some videos of Penkovsky. 
Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Ryan Vlaming, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information